0: Okay, thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stenna. Today, my guest is Elgin Wadali, who among many things is a playwright, producer, and actor. Um, Elgin and I go way back to my younger days in college. Actually, our younger days in college. Now we're 40 with grays developing. I know some people are rolling their eyes like, ooh, you have a gray or two. Try a whole head of it. Um, But it's all good. We're wiser for it. She's easily one of the most easygoing individuals I've met. Every adjective I can think of to describe her revolves around this really chill personality. She's now in the real world doing some dope things that we'll talk about today. Elgin, how's it going?
1: It's great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: And I am happy that you were willing to come on the podcast on such short notice. I reached out to you yesterday, and here we are today. That's that's dope. That's part of that whole easygoing thing. It's like, let's go. Let's do this.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, any any opportunity that I have to speak to you, I'm taking.
0: Thank you for that. And it's <laughs> been a long time. When is the last time we spoke?
1: Um, voice-wise has to be, I would assume, graduation. I have this really great picture of you that I wish I could have found of <gasps> you. <laughs> I'm going to find it and I'm going to send it to you, uh, Please you do. your diploma. Yeah. Shoot up the, the peace sign, but um, you know, we've kept in touch over uh, Facebook messenger over the years and everything, but voice wise, this is the first time we've heard each other, heard each other's voices and um, my gosh, eons.
0: Long time. Yes. And mm-hmm. thank God for social media and zoom now, mm-hmm. um, you know, yes, we reconnected on Facebook. Um, But this whole matter of being able to see somebody and have a conversation, I wasn't doing this until the pandemic hit and Zoom came up. And so shout out to Zoom for that. I know there are other platforms, but it takes me a while. Do you know I only started using Bluetooth in the last two years? What? (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God, y'all, still listening to CDs in the car. (laughs) Like I had the CD wallet on the passenger seat. Um, you know, swapping out CDs and and I was getting so frustrated with the radio. And then one day I'm like, what's this little symbol? Um, and figured out Bluetooth. Yep. Yep. And, and I got the bulky headphones on right now. I don't have Mm the, uh, the wireless joints, but I'm getting there little by little. (laughs) Elgin, where are you at these days?
1: I'm in New York, in cold ass New York. So, although I can't even talk because it's pretty, pretty chilly where you are too, right?
0: Yes, it is. New Hampshire, it's uh, 17 degrees today.
1: Oh, well, then we're having a nice summer day compared to you. It's almost 30. <laughs> Way to rub it in. Where in New York are you? I am in Manhattan. So that's where I grew up and that's where I am now.
0: Oh, So before we pivot into the meat of the episode, was it a tough transition for you leaving Manhattan and going to Worcester, Massachusetts for college?
1: It was an extremely difficult transition. Um, At first, when I went to visit the campus, when I went to Worcester, I said, wow, this is great. Look at all these beautiful trees and this gorgeous, huge campus. And in retrospect, I should have really stayed a night to see what Worcester was like (laughs) once the sun went down. (laughs) And even to see what kind of people were there and what kind of diversity there was, because as you and I both know, um, it wasn't as diverse as uh, they at least led me to believe. So coming from this great melting pot of New York City and going to Worcester where uh, somebody from Maine uh, came up to me and literally said, oh, my God, you're the first black person I've seen in real life. And then she said, well, you know, law and order. And I said, wow, this is where we whoa, are. Okay. whoa, yeah. whoa, mm-hmm. serious? Yep. And you know this person. I'll tell you her name after this.
0: Oh, really? Wow, that was the intro. And it's like, how do you respond to that in the moment? You know, we often, as people of color, have these awkward moments where people say stuff and it's like, all right, so if I dog check you right now, I'm the wrong one. Right. Um, If I respond kindly, then I'm kind of letting you off the hook and you're going to do the same nonsense to somebody else. Um, but wow, law and order, huh?
1: Law and order, yep.
0: Hopefully as a detective- suspect. Oh, yeah. a sus us too. A perk.
1: Mm. Damn. Wow. Mm.
0: Yeah. I used to have these interesting <laughs> um, interactions with people um, at Clark. Um, I'm remembering one um, and it wasn't a bad one. It was like, I was at a party and a white girl comes up to me and she's like, Hey, we have a class together. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, I'm, I don't know. Like there are a lot of you and you of me. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't remember you. And she's like, yeah, you're always, you know, when you speak up in class, you always have something so profound to say. So I wasn't offended by that, but it just really made me understand that everything I say matters and I need to be mindful of what I'm sharing in the classroom. So anyway, Elgin, how do you identify? That was like a a quick transition into the end of the episode. But folks who have been listening for a while know that this is what we do. We talk about identity on identity in me. And so. How do you identify?
1: I am a Black creative woman, daughter of an immigrant father and Italian-American mother. I'm a magical, creative shero.
0: Do you ever use the term biracial to identify yourself or are you very explicit in saying father Grenadian, mother Italian?
1: Um, You know, it's interesting. I did not feel super comfortable saying flat out, I'm a Black woman until fairly recently. And it has everything to do with how the outside world would perceive me, so I could stand firm in my blackness on the inside and be like, "Yes, I'm. I'm a black woman, or I, and I'm. I'm also a biracial woman." But when I would say that to people, especially growing up, they'd be like, "You're not black. Oh. You're not. You're. You're not black enough. You're not." So it would always be this. Oh, okay. Well, let me shrink back, and that's not right. And I think that a lot of um, multi-ethnic folks who are out there struggle with identity and identity finding your identity and being vocal about your identity this is it's a long lifelong process with many ebbs and flows so um I feel proud to be able to say I'm a black woman and for what would you know I feel so comfortable in the sense that if someone says, no, you're not, that I can stand in my power and be like, yes, I am. You can't tell me what I am or am not.
0: Let's go. Let's
1: go. Um, I am half Italian. I'm very much standing in my culture with that. But if you were to ask me, I mean, you know, sometimes you'll see me post soca and Calypso and West Indian this and West Indian see me that, you know, I'm always in Grenada. That is not because I'm shunning or putting to the side my Italian side at all. It's that my father's side of the family is huge. I mean, you know, being uh, also from the Caribbean, it's like huge, huge family, cousins upon cousins and upon cousins. On my mom's side of the family, it's literally just her. She's an only child. There's not that huge sense of community beyond her and her friends who are also Italian, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Take me through your experience yeah. with having people say that you're not Black enough? Like, what are your earliest memories of that?
1: In elementary school, everybody at school was either Dominican, Puerto Rican, Chinese, or Italian. My mother was also a first grade teacher at my elementary school. So there in itself adds another, no pressure at all. But there in itself adds another layer of when I'm trying to say, I'm two things, but then they know what my mom looks like. And they're like, that doesn't make sense. But then when I would tell them what my dad looks like, and sometimes they'd see my dad when he would come to get me after school, they'd be like, no, you're you're not West Indian or you're not Grenadian, because we don't even know where Grenada is. We've never heard of it. You're Puerto Rican. Like, Mm. we're just going to put that on you. And I'm like, but I'm not. So it would be a lot of times kids, as you know, kids are cruel, trying to put this thing of trying to tell me what I am, even though I'm trying to assert myself. Uh, no, that's that's not me. And then that turned into a lie of trying to belong and all right, well, let's just go with it. Yeah, okay, I'm Puerto Rican. Yeah, my dad, yeah, he, whole bunch of stuff about him. Oh, your dad looks like the kind of guy who has tattoos. I'm like, yup, he has them. He has a big old eagle on his back, like <laughs> big old American flag too, like, let's go. <laughs> and even going uh, as far as Clark and Clark days, when I would try to say what I was, I would have a lot of guys, black men come up to me and say, you know, why are you dating a white man? Are we not good enough for you? And that would just, and it's like, dude, I don't even know you. And if it's, if this is your way of hitting on me, that, that ain't it.
0: <laughs> Yo, I have a strong feeling. I know who said that to you even. You like, do, you probably do. Through school, basically elementary school, through college, um, you always had to wrestle with some aspect of your blackness, how you presented uh, choices you made is—is is that what I'm hearing?
1: Well, it didn't necessarily uh, have anything to do with choices I made because I was going to make the choices I made regardless of what somebody was trying to put on me. I always knew who I was. When I say struggle with um, my blackness, it wasn't—it had nothing to do with struggling with my blackness, but uh, the the empowerment that I should have felt when I was younger. I should have felt. I should have had that feeling throughout my entire life. So it constantly felt like I was fighting to be seen when really, if we were talking about magic, it's like, you know what, I'm magical, this is who I am. It doesn't matter what, what anybody else thinks as long as I'm sure and I can stand you know, in my power and say that, then that's all that matters.
0: Absolutely. And for my listeners, because obviously they can't see you, um, how would you describe yourself? Physically? Yeah. I, I want a listener who's um, hearing you right now say, hold on. Why would anybody ever like question her being black? If she's saying she's black, like what, what's the issue here?
1: Yeah. Well, we ahead. know that, well, we know that we are of all shades and, you know, gorgeous hues. And right now it is January. So I have the strong uh, winter complexion on. Uh, so I, I'm light skin. I have green eyes. I have very curly hair. Um, yeah. And if I'm around my dad or my cousins or anything, my accent comes out a little bit. So just as I'm sure yours does too when you're with your mom or any of you. No, friends. actually, no. The your accent, accent don't come out. No, it <gasps> doesn't.
0: Don't lie. Uh, and not intentionally by any means. It's not that I've tried to um, mute any sort of accent over time because I don't get to use Creole much. When I go home and oh. I speak with my mom, I speak in Creole. But as you can imagine, in New Hampshire. I'm not encountering Haitians. Um, I don't have Haitian colleagues. Um, They're a Haitian student or two, but they don't really speak it. And so my opportunities to speak are not frequent. And so even when I'm speaking Creole now, I'm finding myself forgetting words, um, which is upsetting for me because I, I wanna be or seem authentic, but yeah, my mom's like, hold on, since when don't you remember how to say that? I'm like, yo, excuse me, I'm sorry, but literally like I'm doing the code switching thing And I'm talking to you right now and I I just can't remember how to say that. So Mm. no, no accent. No accent. How did you find theater?
1: So growing up in New York, you're always surrounded by movie sets, TV show sets, just people filming on location. So I had it in me that, okay, I'm going to be an actress. This is what I want to do, because. I didn't know when I was younger that there were so many other positions. I couldn't fathom like, oh, directing, producing, costuming. There's so many other things that go into making a show or creating a character, things like that. So um, my mom and I were having dinner one day and I was talking to her about acting. I said, I really want to do this. How do I get started? And she didn't know. She's like, well, I'm not really sure. And I said, well, can I take classes? Would you be able to help me find any? And of course, this is the age before the internet and anything like that. So how are you going to find these things? Um, So uh, the waitress at the restaurant that we were at was a good friend of ours because I had gone to school with her daughter said, well, there's a theater called Downtown Art. It's an off-Broadway theater and it caters to young people. So I said, oh, okay. well, that sounds like a great idea and something that I would be able to do. So long story short, I went there, I auditioned, I got a role, and I was part of that theater for like three or four years, and it really opened my eyes to performing. But whenever I would rehearse or perform, I would always say, wow, okay, well, I'm curious about this story. Where else can it go? And I would always think about writing. But again, I didn't know how to get started. And by that time, I was already at Clark. So I took improv classes. I didn't even think that, oh, you should take a playwriting class. So I just kept writing on my own, still acting. And actually, in For Colored Girls by Intozaki Change with, yeah. um, yep. And so after that, I said, no, maybe I should try doing some off Broadway stuff when I graduate, just like submitting things here and there and seeing if there's a way for me to get into this world. So I did a couple of festivals and that was fun, but I still didn't take it really seriously until I had my stroke. I said, oh man, it really makes, you know, having a near-death experience really helps put things into focus. Sure. And that really put writing into focus for me. I said, all right, if I can still write after I recover and I still have it, I'm going to pursue this, you know, full speed.
0: I want to rewind. There's so much I want to follow up on and I hope I uh, hit on everything. So I'm going to start with this first point. I'm wondering... If your mom was second generation here, um, third. The reason I'm asking is because I know that for me, I had two options for careers, engineering, doctor. My father made that very clear when I was seven. And I remember being 12 years old and thinking, man, you know, I want to um, go to this uh, this local tryout. They were looking for people interested in going into show business, television and so I told my mom I was gonna go. My father was like, I'm not having it. No, nope, no, nope, you're not doing this. And I commonly think of that as being something akin, like in the Haitian community, just you know, this matter of what I'm gonna get into acting. What? No, you're not doing. You're not wasting your time with that. Anyway, when you no- noted that, I was like, "Huh, that's very different than what I would have experienced." And so, one again, is your mom second generation Italian here? And did you encounter any resistance from your family along the way?
1: Well, my parents are divorced. So what my mom was doing and what my dad was doing were two completely different things because my dad was, I mean, we had three careers, doctor, lawyer, or none. Mm. So that was it, actually four or join the army because he he joined the army. So he said, no, those are your choices. That's it. So the way I think that I got my mom on board, and she is second generation, was that it was something that I could do after school. So she said, you still have to study and do all this stuff. But if yep. this is an after school thing, cool. You're still going to college, but you can't have theater be your major. You have to do something else. So I said, okay, well, I guess that's fair. So kind And what did you end up majoring in? <laughs> communications. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I was um yeah, and I uh minored in theater, but I think I was one credit away from also majoring in theater. So, uh again, my parents were like, "Okay, well what are you going to do with this communications degree?" And then I said, "Well, if I can't do theater and theater's like seemingly this dead end in my parents' eyes and I need to make money, I'll just work in TV." So, I worked at CBS when I got out of Clark. So oh. I said, "Okay, well, that's a that's a way to pivot. So I can still work at CBS and I can still do theater. So it's like that whole thing. Yeah. Have your job and do this on the side or do it on the side until that becomes your career.
0: Did you ever meet Dan Rather? Yes. You did? How was that?
1: It was cool. It was, it was very nice. Yeah. I worked in um, I worked at CBS. I worked for MTV. I worked for MD- NBC. I had, yeah. A lot of places. Met a lot of people.
0: Okay, back to the journey along the way. So you're in the after school programs. You're going through high school. Was there much representation in terms of race in the theater circles that you were frequenting?
1: This theater was incredibly diverse because not only because it was in um, it was on the Lower East Side. So you you know Lower East Side is a melting pot. There's everybody. Um, but even folks who did not live on the Lower East Side also came to try and be a part of it. So it was very inclusive. And it was from, it included kids from, uh, I think, eight years old to 17 years old. So not only do you have this beautiful mesh of um, ethnicities, races, genders, you also have age at different ages, which is just even more gorgeous because you get to work with people in different stages of their lives. And as a 16 or 17 year old, if I have to do a scene with a 10 year old, that's like really hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's ex- extremely hard work. The first um, Broadway play that I saw was when I was 16. Cause that's when I really started to talk to my mom about um, doing theater. I saw um, bring in the noise, bring in the funk, which of course is a black show. And part of the reason why I suggested that for my birthday to see it on my birthday is because that's the only show that I knew that had people who looked like me and I don't want to see any of this other stuff. And I'm sure the other stuff was good, but the other stuff wasn't representation. So if I could see people who looked like me on stage, then I could. it allowed me to, to think about my dream in an even more realistic way. The fact that there, there was only one show didn't even cross my mind. I was like, well, this show, if there's only one show, that means it's special. Like, it's the best. They don't need, If they don't need any other uh, shows on Broadway. With black people, because this is the show. This is it. The reason why there are so many shows with white people on Broadway is because they aren't that great, so they need a lot of them. <laughs> this is how oh, my way, young to, mind. Reframe. way yeah, to reframe. Yeah, this is it. how yeah. this is how my young mind was working.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm like, why did I think that? That wasn't the case, but for for the moment, it it helped push me.
0: And that's so important. I mean, at that age, to say to yourself, this doesn't mean I don't belong. It means power, opportunity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you're continuing, um, you have a career in theater, Um, you're an actor, you're a playwright, you're a producer. And by the way, um, do you refer to yourself as an actor or actress?
1: I don't refer to myself as either, actually. I refer to myself as strictly a screenwriter and a playwright. um, Because it has been many years since I've acted. Although when I am writing, I do read my words and speak to you know and act stuff out just for because I think all writers do that but um yeah if something came up though and I had an opportunity to act again I would definitely take it though
0: okay so rewind before we continue in this direction there's a moment in your life where you decided you really needed to go with this and that's when you um, had the stroke I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your experience dealing with doctors when you had the stroke. Don't you hate those cliffhangers? You'll have to tune in to part two of my conversation with Elgin Wardali to hear about her journey. Until then, keep reflecting. Identity and B.
1: Identity and B.